Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Tardive dyskinesia is characterized by involuntary, repetitive, purposeless movements that can affect different parts of the body. It is a well-known side effect of conventional antipsychotics and commonly occurs after several years of treatment. Effective treatment for tardive dyskinesia is unclear. Recently, the sigma-1 receptor agonist fluvoxamine was reported to be beneficial for hyperkinetic movement disorders. The mechanism of action might be due to sigma-1 agonism. In this case series, the authors report on five patients with schizophrenia who experienced post-psychotic depressive disorder and tardive dyskinesia. All patients were given fluvoxamine 100 milligrams per day, and after the second week, the dosage of fluvoxamine was increased to 200 milligrams per day. Fluvoxamine was found to be beneficial for tardive dyskinesia and depression in all patients by the fourth week. Data on the effects of fluvoxamine on hyperkinetic movement disorders are limited. Further detailed double-blind studies should clarify the potential use of fluvoxamine in the treatment of hyperkinetic movement disorders, as it could be a useful alternative treatment with no serious and distressing side effects. We now look at the effect of depression on health-related quality of life, work productivity, resource use, and costs among women experiencing menopausal symptoms, including hot flashes. The authors reviewed data from the 2005 U.S. National Health and Wellness Survey. Among women who reported experiencing menopausal symptoms, 1,165 women who reported experiencing depression in the last year were compared with 2,467 women who reported no depression in the last year. Women who reported experiencing depression were significantly more likely to be white, to be unemployed, to be uninsured, to currently smoke, to not exercise, and to be obese. These women also reported significantly worse quality of life and significantly greater work productivity loss, healthcare resource use, and costs compared to the women who did not report experiencing depression. Given the prevalence and burden of depression, these findings suggest that proper assessment and management of depressive symptoms among women with menopause may have an important humanistic and economic benefit. This study was sponsored by Pfizer. Gender differences in medicine represent a hot topic. Differences in psychopathology and course of illness between female and male patients with schizophrenia have frequently been reported. However, the influence of sex on treatment efficacy is still an open issue. Gender may be a moderator of both response to and tolerability of antipsychotics. The authors of the next study compared 488 male and 380 female patients participating in the Electronic Schizophrenia Treatment Adherence Registry, an international 
prospective observational study assessing use of risperidone long-acting injection in patients with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder in both the Czech and Slovak republics. Demographic, clinical, and treatment-related data were collected at baseline and then prospectively for 24 months. The authors focused on gender differences in demographic and clinical data. Results showed that treatment with risperidone was associated with clinically significant improvement in both men and women with comparable severity of illness. There were no significant differences between genders in most outcome measures. The risperidone long-acting injections may minimize gender differences in bioavailability by avoiding the first-pass effect. The authors conclude that gender differences, especially concerning treatment response to individual antipsychotics and their different forms, should be more intensively studied. The study was supported by a research grant from Janssen CR and the Project Central European Institute of Technology from European Regional Development Fund. In this issue, we present two post hoc studies of adjunctive aripiprazole for the treatment of major depressive disorder. The first study by Dunner and colleagues investigates whether switching within or between antidepressant classes prior to the use of adjunctive antipsychotic treatment is associated with different outcomes. The second study by Fabian and colleagues focuses specifically on functional outcomes. Most depressed patients will first receive treatment with antidepressant therapy in a primary care setting. Clinicians can choose from several classes of antidepressant agents, including selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. However, patients often do not respond to the initial treatment, and clinicians must then adjust therapy. These adjustments include switching from one antidepressant class to another, combining antidepressant agents, or adding another type of medication, such as an atypical antipsychotic. Aripiprazole is an atypical antipsychotic that is a proven augmentation option for patients with inadequate response to antidepressant therapy. Nevertheless, it is unclear how previous antidepressant treatment may affect future response to aripiprazole. Dunner and colleagues investigated if the efficacy of aripiprazole augmentation differed in two patient groups, those who switched within class and, for example, received two different SSRIs before aripiprazole augmentation, and those who switched between class and, for example, received an SSRI and an SNRI before the addition of aripiprazole. The results showed that augmentation with aripiprazole after either a between-class or within-class switch following initial antidepressant treatment was equally effective. This finding supports the use of adjunctive aripiprazole in the treatment of a wide range of patients with unresponsive depression. The design and conduct of this study was supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Otsuka. Editorial assistance was provided by Bristol-Myers Squibb. Depression is among the leading causes of disability in the United States and worldwide. 
While millions are treated with antidepressants each year, few will respond to the first antidepressant prescribed. Recent evidence suggests that one-third of patients will fail to achieve remission after four stages of antidepressant treatment. Even those patients who partially respond to treatment may still report residual symptoms that can lead to impaired functioning and reduced quality of life, resulting in social isolation, marital problems, and problems at work. It has been long recognized that there is an association between depression and impaired social functioning, and it is acknowledged that recovery from depression requires both the resolution of depressive symptoms and an improvement in the interactions of individuals with their social and work environments. Thus, the overall goal of depression treatment should be to improve functional impairment and quality of life, in addition to relieving depressive symptoms. A potential treatment option is to add a low-dose antipsychotic to an antidepressant regimen. In this article, Fabian and colleagues analyzed data from three similarly designed clinical trials that investigated the potential effect of combining the atypical antipsychotic aripipazole with an antidepressant on improving a patient's functional impairment compared with receiving antidepressants alone. The results showed a significant improvement in social and familial functions for subjects receiving the combination compared with those receiving antidepressants only. The authors conclude that aripipazole combined with antidepressants resulted in significant shifts in the level of severity of functional impairments in people with persistent depressive symptoms compared with those receiving antidepressants alone. This study was supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and Otsuka. Assessment of treatment response in patients with ADHD has generally been limited to narrowly focused measures of ADHD symptoms as defined by DSM-IV-TR, with relatively little attention paid to other relevant outcome domains. In this article, Epstein and colleagues review approaches for measuring ADHD treatment outcomes. The authors searched the PubMed database and found that the vast majority of studies assessing ADHD treatments have measured treatment response using ADHD symptom measures. Additional domains relevant for assessing treatment response among children and adults with ADHD include functional impairment, quality of life, adaptive life skills, and executive function. Validated rating scales exist for assessing these additional domains, but there has been minimal research evaluating the sensitivity of these instruments for detecting treatment response in pediatric and adult samples. The author suggests that assessment of treatment outcomes in ADHD should move beyond symptom assessment to incorporate measures of functioning, quality of life, adaptive skills, and executive function, especially when assessing long-term treatment response. They recommend a potential battery and schedule of measures that could be used to more comprehensively assess treatment response in patients with ADHD. Shire Development LLC provided funding to complete Healthcare Communications, Inc. for support in writing and editing this manuscript. 
Hispanics are more likely to receive mental health care in primary care settings for a variety of reasons, from lack of access to mental health specialists and income and insurance issues, to the stigma surrounding mental illness and the trust of the relationship with the family physician. Collaborative care is a systematic approach to patient care that involves integration of care managers with psychiatrist consultation and primary care physician oversight to more proactively treat mental health disorders. In this study, Sanchez and Watt evaluated the effectiveness of a collaborative care program in a primary care setting that served a predominantly Hispanic, low-income population and examined depression outcomes in a subpopulation of preferentially Spanish-speaking patients compared with non-Hispanic white patients. The authors found that Spanish-speaking Hispanic patients had significantly greater odds of achieving a clinically meaningful improvement in depression at three-month follow-up compared to non-Hispanic whites. The finding of greater improvement in the Spanish-speaking population remained after controlling for age, sex, medical comorbidities, prior treatment, and baseline depression scores. The results suggest that a collaborative model of care is effective for a population at great risk for marginal mental health care, and attention to patient preferences in primary care is essential to improve quality of depression treatment and may improve outcomes. In light of previous research that demonstrates insufficient evidence-based guidelines for patients with limited English proficiency and evidence that evaluation of patients in their non-primary language or through an interpreter can lead to inaccurate mental health assessments, this study suggests an opportunity to improve the quality of mental health care for non-English speaking Hispanics in the United States. The St. David's Foundation provided funding for the associated program evaluation. In this study, Lee and colleagues investigated the sleep characteristics of a community sample of patients with 13 types of mental disorders. Subjects were sampled from the epidemiologic site's survey of mental illness at a mental health center in China from October 2004 to March 2005. The study group included 1,874 subjects who met the diagnostic criteria of 13 types of mental disorders according to the Structured Clinical Interview for dsm 4 TR Axis 1 Disorders Patient Edition. The control group included 15,117 subjects without mental disorders. Sleep quality was assessed with the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index and social life function was assessed with the global assessment of functioning. There was a significant difference in the prevalence of sleep disorders between the study and control groups. The prevalence of sleep disturbances in the group with 13 types of mental disorders ranged from 19.3% to 69.9%. The prevalence of sleep disturbance in subjects with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder was 69.9% and 58.3% respectively. 
Subjects with mental disorders, comorbid with sleep disorders, tended to be older than those with mental disorders without sleep disorders. And the prevalence of sleep disorders was higher in patients with mental disorders who were female, older, less educated, retired or farmers, and widowed or married. The authors conclude that the prevalence of sleep disorders in patients with mental disorders is high. Longer sleep latency and shorter sleep duration were the most common characteristics of low-quality sleep in the patients with mental disorders and were most notable in those with depression. The authors found no relation between the severity of depression and sleep disorders. Interactions with patients at the end of life can leave a deep impression on the caregiver. In this issue's psychotherapy casebook, Dr. Schuyler provides an account of his four-month friendship with Mr. A, a man with terminal cancer who was negotiating his final life stage. When Mr. A finally died, he left an empty space in Dr. Schuyler's life. Read the full story at theprimarycarecompanion.com. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of a 43-year-old woman with impaired cognition who was evaluated on the inpatient psychiatric unit following a suicide attempt. Following discharge from the hospital, she began displaying bizarre behaviors and was eventually readmitted to the psychiatric unit. Does the patient have an underlying psychiatric disorder, substance abuse issues, or a brain lesion? Could she be suffering from frontotemporal dementia or a brain injury? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded to this instructive offering. Thanks for joining me for this summary and offerings from our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including interesting case reports, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. <laughs>